Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.47 a.m. Central Daylight Time. Ah, Two more days. Two more days. As far as I know, this weekend is when we turn from daylight savings time and the fraud that it is into regular old time. I can't wait, dude. This, I mean, the darkness is just killing me. I would not survive in the Arctic where you've got six-month nights. I'm not sure I'd do well with six-month days either, honestly, but still, I would probably do better than, than darkness for six straight months. Anyway, it is the 5th of November. Remember, remember the 5th of November, right? 2021. And this is episode 502 of Bitcoin. And we're going to start with remember, remember the 5th of November it's the first art. Actually, is it the first article that I got up? I don't know. Let me check. My God, I, I'm just devastated from being like massively overwhelmed. No, nope, yeah, it is going to be my first one up uh, to start the day. But uh, let me, I let me digress into the sickness. Got a cold, and it was building up. I'm pretty sure it was kind of like getting there like Sunday and then Monday and then by Tuesday, actually it was Monday afternoon, uh, like early afternoon, man. I was just like, "Uh uh-oh, the shit. I'm like, God dang it. And this happens every year. And it's a crapshoot as to whether or not the cold turns into fully blown bronchitis. That seems to be the pattern with me. Has been over the last few years. So I was not messing around with this damn thing. I literally stayed in bed or got, you know, covered up on the couch. I was eating like a gram of emergency, which is, well, actually a packet of emergency, which includes a gram of vitamin C in powdered form. Like, I don't know, every other hour, like all day long, plus like, I don't know, five or six, you know, vitamin D tabs, like five or six times a day. And then I strolled on out. I finally said, fuck it. You know, I strolled on out one day and, uh, sick as a dog with this goddamn cold and went down to a place that I had seen, uh, in the area. That's a store that sells elderberry syrup. And we'll get into that here in a second. So I get this stuff and it's made with local honey and elderberry juice and it's made by a re- I don't want to say regional it's a it's a local small kind of like I don't know farm stand slash venue slash honeyville kind of thing I'm not exactly sure you know what it is but uh it's 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 a, a retail model that's becoming popular and I think what it is is it's a retail model that sits kind of in between agro-tourism and fully-blown retail that is just buying stuff off-site, putting it into the store so that you can blow your money on. At least these people prepare their own candies. They prepare their own elixirs of, like, hair care products. They do it with all local honey, and that I I, want to support that. So I go and I get this eight ounce bottle of elderberry syrup for $23, by the way, 23 bucks for this thing and started taking it. And I was almost like, I almost felt good within six hours after taking a tablespoon. And then it took another tablespoon, like right before I went to bed. And I've been taking tablespoons twice daily of this stuff. If if you're wondering why I'm I'm going on about elderberry syrup is because of the elderberry that's in it. Elderberry. It's like oldberry. This is like an ancient, ancient 
medical knowledge that we have lost because we have been told to only believe the people that wear the white fucking coats. And as how's, how's that working out for you so far? Yeah, no, these guys, we're, we're going to see a, I think what's going to happen is we're going to see a transformation in the medical industry because of the buffoonery, the chicanery, the hog cockery that we've seen going on around the, the beer virus. Okay. This is, has just become a clown show beyond all goddamn reckoning. It just gets worse and fucking worse and fucking worse and fucking worse and worse and worse and worse. Elderberry. It's an antiviral. Now, does that mean that it's like if you get like a virus and let's not say beer virus, let's say something else like an actual really, really, really bad flu or no, this one viral pneumonia, right? Like a viral pneumonia or, or God forbid a viral bronchitis. I had a viral bronchitis one day that put me on the couch for three straight weeks. I was so sick for so long that I quit smoking. I couldn't think of even smoking a cigarette. I was coughing so bad. I mean, it was bad, guys. It was really, really, really bad. And it turns out that it was a viral version of bronchitis, not your general, you know, uh, uh, bacterial version. <clears throat> and that's why it was so bad. And it kept me on the couch for so long that by the time I got better, I was like, holy shit. If I wanted to, I could quit smoking right now because I had already gone through the withdrawal uh, syndrome. Because the first two weeks of quitting smoking is the worst two weeks. And that within that two weeks is when you start smoking again. I haven't smoked since. So getting sick was actually good for me. Let's pause and just let's think about that for a little bit. On Monday, which was the last show that was like uh, episode 501, I had made the statement that much of what we consider or science, oh God, I, I, I'm starting to get embarrassed by saying the word scientists now. Pre-beer virus, before the clown show donned a medical coat and a stethoscope, there was a time where you could say the word scientist and not upchuck a little bit into the back of your throat. Okay, that's the time that I'm referring to here. There was a time when scientists, when we respected them and, and they deserved our respect, knew that much of our DNA and all of our cells was not generated by general mutations in our own DNA as we moved through evolutionary scales of time, that we had additions to our DNA and they called it junk DNA because they didn't know at the time that they were additions. And they just knew that it was DNA that they didn't see as actually performing any kind of function. It didn't seem to code for any kind of protein that would actually do anything or if it would pro code for a protein at all. But that's, yeah, I'm not even going to touch that one. I'm just saying that they used to call 90, like I think it was called 95% of our DNA was junk DNA. What we've come to find out is that this is a, our DNA is an amalgam of a conversation that the human species go as we move through evolutionary scales of time is a conversation between us and our environment. And what's very much present in our environment are viruses and we get infected by them. Some of them are retroviruses, which carry RNA, all right? That RNA gets injected directly into a cell and then it hijacks a little bit of the internal mechanisms of a human cell or a mammalian cell and is, have, has that RNA transcribed back into DNA and then inserted into the nucleus and then gets actually inserted into the genome. If that happens, in the gonads, if you're so fucked up with a flu virus or something like that, that this actually occurs in your gonads, you know, your, your ovaries or your testicles, then you pass that gene on. And over millennia, we've accumulated all of this information that we used to think was junk. I don't think it's junk. I really start, I'm starting to wonder if, because I get sick, like I said, every fall. 
It happens every fall. And I always used to think of it as an annoyance, or I always used to think of it as something that was bad. You're sick. That's bad. That's always bad. What if it isn't? What if getting sick is actually a natural function of being human and that it actually provides you something? I don't know exactly what. I do know that getting sick back, you know, like over the course of evolutionary scales of time has given us massive amounts of information in the form of genetic code that we now carry with us and will carry with us forever because as we procreate, all of that information gets passed down to the next generation. It's not junk. I think this has something to do with epigenetics. I think us getting sick is a way of taking on more information about the environment as the environment changes and that we're being somehow or another guarded or, or given a tool set to use in the future in case something occurs that we can't really know about. And what I'm getting at here is that for all the people that tell you that they know what the hell's going on in evolution, in the standard bio, biological models of, of the day, that they understand how life works, that they understand exactly how genes work. Bullshit. Okay, we know a lot, but the intricacies of the system of which we're talking about is so profound that there is no way that you'll be able to say, okay, well, I know how this particular gene works. You might. Do you know all of the interactions that could possibly occur from that gene functioning through the organism level, through the, that organism's societal level, through the society's interactions back to the environment? No. No, you can't. Why? Because the model's too big. It's, it's too big of a situation to be able to model is what I'm getting at. So the next time you get sick, uh, unless you die, which would suck, okay, the next time you get sick with a virus, not cancer, not like, you know, pancreatitis, not, not any of that shit, right? Like just a cold or a flu or, or a bacterial infection or something like that, maybe just step back and think, not only, well, think about getting well, that's going to be priority, but maybe it means something else when we get sick. And we should start looking deeper into our relationship with the life that we live. All right, with that rant over, let's get into this tweet that I put out this morning. And all it is is a picture of natural gas prices from 1991 to the present. I have seen a lot of tweets and posts and news stories going around about fertilizer. Fertilizer for the agricultural sector. How much pressure have we already been seen putting, been putting, ah, I can't even talk. How much pressure have we seen before the thing that I'm about to talk about has been put on food? We've been talking about having to eat bugs. We've been talking, you know, have like, well, you should go vegetarian and meat kills the environment and, you know, ruminal animals don't, you know, destroy the land and all the bullshit because it is exactly that bullshit. For months, we've been primed for this. And all of a sudden, we get a hair pulling contest between the crier, the town criers about how, because natural gas prices are so high that it's impossible to make ammonia-based fertilizers, the, the chemistry, the chemical sets, right, that we use for, for modern agronomy, that we're running out of a fertilizer. Oh my God, you're going to die. You're going to starve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so gas prices today are $5.71 for a thousand cubic feet. Okay, and everybody's losing their fucking mind about how we're all going to starve. Back in 2008, probably in the middle of 2008, we had a spike of natural gas that lasted for months and its peak was well over $12.50. Where was the hair pulling? Nowhere. Oh my God, nowhere. Oh, oh, and look at this. In 2006, uh, to actually probably or a little bit before 2006, we had another spike in price over $12.50 per MCF natural gas price. 2006 or 2005, somewhere around there. Silence. 
no clown show, no talking heads telling us that we're all going to die. No tweets are coming. Well, actually, I guess Twitter wasn't back around that time, but still, there was no, there was no, you know, the losing of the minds on a general scale. And then way back, way, way, way back in somewhere around 2000, between 2000 and 2001, we had a spike above or right at $10. Now, all these spikes, if you take the, the median, like the halfway point on these spikes, the halfway point in 2008, $10 gas lasted for a couple of months. $10 natural gas lasted for a couple of months. $7.50 gas lasted for like three and a half to four straight months. Here we are with this little peak at $5.71 and people are losing their, their damn minds. And, and all of a sudden, it's not about anything. It's not about high energy cost. It's about the lack of natural gas to be able to make fertilizer. Do you, are you starting to get a picture of what's going on here? The media, and we know this, I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't know, but the media has been so co-opted for so long that if you now trust anything that the mainstream media says, please stop listening to my show. I can't help you. You will end up in a gulag. You will end up getting every shot that they want you to take. You will do everything that they tell you to do because you're that fucking gullible. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it right now. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. That's a traditional Guy Fox a night rhyme. And we're getting this from my good friend Alexander Svetsky. I love that name from Bitcoin Magazine. On what better day? And in what better way to remind everyone why we're all here in the first place than a little excerpt expired by V for Vendetta. On this most auspicious day, roughly 400 years ago, a guy named Guy Fox attempted to blow up Parliament in England. While he may have failed in the act, his message was remembered. His act was symbolic. It serves to remind people that their government exists to serve them, not to rule over them. Here we are in 2021, almost half a millennium later, fighting the same fight against an arguably more vicious foe, only this time we don't need to blow up any buildings to prove a point. This time we have the ultimate tool, the ultimate weapon, and the ultimate symbol, Bitcoin, does what no force or symbol has ever done before. It removes the ace that all governments throughout history have had up their sleeves, with which they've gained the upper hand over the citizenry. It's been their mechanism of control, of paratism, and of literally baking moral hazard into the grand game of life. Yes, I'm talking about the damn money. By placing it outside of the reach of any of us, whether individual, government, corporation, central bank, or institution of any kind, we have, for the first time in human history, a true equality of opportunity. In fact, it's the only equality of opportunity that can be verifiably measured and that actually counts. With it, we also have the potential for a prospering of the commons. Bitcoin isn't just the next financial product that the monkeys on Wall Street and scammers like Rug Paul would have... <laughs> sorry, rug pal, would have you believe in with their blind attempts at financializing it and patting themselves on the back over a stupid EFT. Nor is Bitcoin just another fourth turning event, which is transient or cyclical in nature, like the morons who wrote the fourth turning may believe. This is so much bigger than what any of us can begin to fathom. And Satoshi Nakamoto themselves knew this, knew that viscerally, quote, Sorry to be a wet blanket. Writing a description for this thing for general audience is bloody hard. There's nothing to relate it to, says Satoshi Nakamoto. Bitcoin is a step change in how humanity will operate. It will usher in a time when the map truly represents the territory in high fidelity, when the scorecard of life is accurately measurable and incorruptible. Bitcoin is like a time and energy superconductor which enables economic and behavioral feedback loops and human coordination across time and space in a way never before achieved. It is our tool to get through the great filter and we need to remember that. We need to remember it because we're surrounded by enemies on all sides. From shitcoiners to Silicon Valley, sorry, I'm gonna do that again because he's got a really great line here. 
From shitcoiners to Silicon Valley soys and their venture capital firms to bankers, hedge funds, governments, the media, the intelligentsia, economists, the academics, and even cartoon character supervillains cosplaying as Dr. Evil. All of them hate Bitcoin because it removes their ability to feed like the parasites that they are. I use the word specifically in place of elites because these people are anything but elite. To be elite implies that you are exceptional at something. These parasites hate it because it makes all of them and their very existence obsolete. We all love Bitcoin because it levels the playing field and sets the stage for the good and functional to prevail while the broken, fraudulent, and ineffective either correct or disappear. We love it because in it, we find deep meaning. And through it, we have the chance to bring about a period of human history that once again is worth remembering. Like the quote, every Hammond found in, uh, oh, sorry, like the quote, every Hammond found in V's home for V for Vendetta. V veri venversum vivus vici, roughly translated as, by the power of truth, I, while living, have conquered the universe. Bitcoin is our truth with which we may conquer the universe. So let's use today as a reminder to move closer toward that truth. And as a side benefit, take another step closer to making obsolete the parasites I mentioned earlier. Quote, remember, remember, it is the 5th of November, the Bitcoin revolution and plot. I know of no reason why the Bitcoin revolution should ever be forgot. Alexander Spatsky, just knocking it out of the fucking park today. Thank you so much for all of the stuff that you do. Now, going from good person to bad person within two stories, uh, we're going to get into Aaron Wood's uh, description of this one from Cointelegraph. American grocer Kroger says Bitcoin cash press release was fraudulent. Oh boy. Oh boy. American grocery store chain Kroger has denied claims that it is accepting cryptocurrency payments. The major retailer said that a press release stating it would accept Bitcoin cash at all of its stores as well as for online purchases was a hoax. According to Reuters, Kroger is the second retailer to recently fall victim to such a scam. Kroger has previously dabbled in the cryptocurrency space. In 2020, the firm began to offer Bitcoin rewards at its store through crypto-based rewards platform Lolly. Crypto has gradually found its way into the grocery store vertical in various forms and 2019, Safeway, another major American grocery chain, began offering Bitcoin rewards through Lolly, similar to Kroger. Earlier this summer, crypto ATM firm CoinCloud announced it was preparing to install machines in 29 HEB supermarkets located in uh, uh, Houston, Texas. Cryptocurrency's underlying blockchain technology has also been slated to play an important role in the grocery industry. A 2019 study by research firm Gartner predicted that 20% of the top 10 global grocers will be using blockchains by 2025. Okay, so what happened? Well, it seems very odd (laughs) that uh, this press release came out because it looked... And still looks because it was well. It was up fifteen or minutes ago or an hour ago uh, that it came from Kroger's like own blog, and yet here we have Kroger saying that it's that it's a complete fraud. Which I believe when when Kroger actually makes time to t- put out a press release that something was a fraud, then it's probably a fraud. But we do have to ask ourselves how the hell did it get there? How the hell did it get there? Was it Roger Ver? Did he pay somebody to do it? Did somebody just do it on their own? I don't know, but you're going to have to watch these cats pretty carefully. This is why being a toxic Bitcoin maximalist works in our favor because nothing, nothing gets by us. Nothing at all. By the way, I'm putting the word in the street. Can somebody find me a word that that actually means something worse than toxic? I mean, is toxic the, the top limit of a word we can choose? I mean, what is if, if, if something like a chemical spill is toxic, what the fuck is gamma radiation that completely obliterates all the DNA in every single cell of your body within seconds? Because that's what gamma radiation will do. Is, is, there, is there a word for that? Because that's what I am, Bitcoin maximalist. Anyway, Miami mayor to take his entire salary in Bitcoin. Whoa. Bitcoin magazine, Nomsios has it. 
Miami Mayor Francis Suarez will be taking his entire salary in Bitcoin, he said in an interview with Fox Business. Suarez explained that he wants to provide the option for city employees to receive their salaries in BTC, partly or in full, but it won't be imposed upon anyone. Quote, our CIO was the first employee to take a percentage of his salary in Bitcoin, and I'm going to be employee number two. I'm taking 100% of my salary in Bitcoin, the mayor said. Suarez wants to level up the field and allow all city employees to be paid in Bitcoin, but, quote, it will be completely optional. We want our employees to have that option, but it's certainly not going to be something that we're going to force on them, he assured. The mayor said he understands that, quote, a decision like that is a personal one. Still, he wants his city to be at the forefront of technological advancements in the U.S. and, quote, send a message to the world that we are going to be one of the most innovative governments and innovative cities on the planet, end quote. Suarez's statement comes two days after he tweeted his intentions to get his next paycheck in BTC. But now, it seems he isn't happy with only one payment as it has increased the stakes to his entire salary. If Suarez follows suit on his claims... The mayor will be taking home around $97,000 per year of Bitcoin and become the first U.S. politician to be fully paid in BTC. Hold that thought. I'm, I'm honestly really surprised that he's only getting paid $97,000 for being the mayor of a city like Miami. That's not, that's not Bob's backyard, you know, like Bo, you know, Bodunk Town. That's Miami. Dude. Not not exactly small potatoes there. So $97,000 is not bad. Clearly, he's a politician. He knows how to get more money on the side. I get it. I get it. I get it. I really do. But you know, chill for now. Okay, anyway. Miami mayor's move might be a swift game theoretic response to the New York City mayor-elect, Eric Adams, who earlier today replied to Suarez's tweet saying he would take not one, but three paychecks in Bitcoin. However, Suarez credited manipulated central bank currency systems as the main driver for his move. Quote, when governments are spending that kind of money that they are, when you have inflation at the point that it is, when you have rampant overspending in government and deficit spending, all of that pushes in favor of an increase in the price of Bitcoin, Suarez said. So, I feel very comfortable getting my entire salary in Bitcoin. Whoa. <coughs> Sorry about that. I'm still I'm still uh, got got some of the cough here, but so do we have are, are we entering into a time where we have politicians who are going to one up each other on how much they get paid in Bitcoin? Honestly, I think that's awesome. Okay, look. Eric Adams came out said, "Hey man, we're going to make New York City the best Bitcoin city in the world." And now he's talking about New York City coin and blockchain and altcoins. I get it. I know. I get it. I don't like it either. And my, and Suarez ain't exactly all free, you know, free and clean of that shit either, is he? No, he's got Miami coin and he's used the word cryptocurrency and blockchain every once in a while instead of just being, nope, we're just going to do nothing but Bitcoin. But still, these guys are both one-upping themselves on getting paid in Bitcoin, not cryptocurrency. So look at what they do, not what they say, right? Look at what they do first. If they start doing what they're saying and they start using cryptocurrency, actual cryptocurrency for their own pay and shit like that, then we should probably say, fuck you. But for right now, I'm enjoying the show of watching a Miami mayor say, I'm going to get the next paycheck in Bitcoin. And New York mayor, right after saying, well, I'm going to take three paychecks of Bitcoin. And then right after that, Suarez says, well, fuck it, I'm going to take my entire salary in Bitcoin. So where is that going to go? I don't know, man, but it's going to be, it's going to be pretty cool. I, I think, I really do. I think so. Because now we even got Joe Rogan in on this shit. The world's biggest podcaster, Joe Rogan, accepts Bitcoin payment. Bitcoin Magazine, Alex McShane. Joe Rogan, the world's most successful podcaster and comedian, may have accepted a Bitcoin payment of $100,000. The podcast host and MMA commentator has talked about Bitcoin in the past on his show and has even hosted conversations with notable Bitcoiners, but accepting Bitcoin as payment marks a definitive switch in a stance on his part. During the Joe Rogan experience, episode 1728, about 56 minutes in, frequent guest and comedian Ari Shafir 
boasted to fellow comics Mark Norman and Shane Gillis on behalf of their friend, quote, Joe got a deal for over $100,000, Schaefer said. Quote, it's not American money, Joe deflected, brushing off his fellow comics antics. It's all in Bitcoin, end quote. If this encounter is any indication of Rogan's stance on Bitcoin, and if in fact it's true that he was paid over 1.5 BTC by today's prices, the occasion marks a shift in his understanding of the world's most sound store of value. In the past, Rogan dismissed Bitcoin on his show as a Ponzi which is an opinion many form when hearing about the success of Bitcoin's early adopters prior to doing their homework on the composition of the leaderless, ungovernable, ungovernable asset. However, one of the more captivating and humanizing traits of the internet legend is that Rogan frequently revises his opinions on topic throughout the episode when presented with good information. In February 2019 episode with Twitter and Square CEO Jack Dorsey, who is an extremely active promoter of Bitcoin, Joe commented, quote, one of the things that's kind of cool about the Cash App is that you can buy and sell Bitcoin with it, end quote. Rogan went on to ask whether Dorsey would allow other cryptocurrencies outside of Bitcoin to be bought and sold on the platform. Dor Dorsey then explained to Rogan how Bitcoin will become the native currency of the internet, the trials that have strengthened it, and what is likely to propel Bitcoin to becoming a global store of value and reserve assets. During that episode with Dorsey, Rogan, for perhaps the first time since hosting early episodes with OG Bitcoin advocate and educator Andreas Antonopoulos, talked about Bitcoin seriously as a disruptive technology. Quote, This is another step towards a new way of doing things, he remarked at the time. In the past, he has cited popular Bitcoin educators such as Max Kaiser on the show, at times displaying something more than a surface-level interest. Joe Rogan's acceptance of Bitcoin on any scale will be celebrated by people who have Bitcoin by sheer virtue of his reach, which is in some way unquantifiable. It is estimated his podcast reaches over 11 million people per show. Over the years, he has brought considerable influence and unprecedented attention to the arts of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai boxing, MMA, elk hunting, archery, biohacking, comedy, health and fitness, self-improvement, clean eating, and podcasting in general. Ooh, wow, that's a handful, dude. One can only hope Rogan will continue to research Bitcoin, come to understand the fundamental differences between it and the other crypto securities, and share his Bitcoin journey with the world. Hey, let's just run the numbers right now. Futures and commodities, 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 oil, and the rest of the flammable liquids are mixed. West Texas Intermediate is up 0.66%, but it's under $80 a barrel at $79.33. Brent North Sea is up 0.4%. Uh, it is just over 80 bucks at 80.87. Natural gas taking it on the chin. 3.15% to the downside, and yet we still have $5.53 on that price. <coughs> uh, gasoline, $2.28 a gallon, which is representing a almost half percent decline in the futures price today. Uh, gold is up a quarter of a percent, but under $1,800, $1,797.70. Silver is down scant at 23.89, platinum scant down, copper down almost a half a point and palladium rocketing 1.31% to the upside. Agricultural futures are mixed and the biggest loser is coffee at 2.06% to the downside. The biggest gainer is cotton which is up only 0.69%. And let's see what do we have here? Dow is going to be up 88% 80. Sorry, don't, don't, no, no. Under 1%, 0.88% to the upside. S&P is going to be up a 0.74. NASDAQ futures up 0.53. S&P mini is up a 1.24. Let me check the time. Yeah, they're still not open just yet. So I'm, I, I guess I'm good by saying futures, but screw it. We got real money on the table at $61,759. $282,162 transactions were performed on Bitcoin in the last 24 hours. That's just under 12,000 transactions every hour on the hour. 
with 689,000 BTC being sent around the horn in the last 24 hours. That's 28,700 BTC every hour on the hour being sent with an average transaction value of 2.4 BTC and the median transaction value of 0.013 BTC or 781 bucks. I'm gonna pause right there to remind you that six months ago, we started going from the median transaction value being stable at $300, okay? $300 US dollars. And now it's stable at around somewhere between six and $900. That's a threefold increase in the amount of median transaction value. There's something, there's something there because it's been six months since I've seen anything, anything at all below 500 bucks. And it's happened like maybe once or twice. Most of the time we're sitting here nailed right around 800 bucks. Block times nailed at nine minutes and 48 seconds. So a little fast, 0.11 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis, 17 and a third BTC taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. And with almost an 11% drop in hash rate, we are still at 154.4 exahashes per second. Your shitcoin indicator is Doge at 26.3 United States pennies. I hate that dog. 876 transactions waiting on one block to clear. We have a $1.16 trillion market cap, which is 9.88% of gold's total market cap. And you can still, with your one Bitcoin, purchase 34.3 ounces of shiny metal rocks. There are 18,864,491.5 BTC in the network at this time. 3,181.3 of those are in the Lightning Network with a capacity value of $196.3 million being run over 17,423 nodes. And we have 78,867 payment channels. 74.4% of all of that is being run over Tor. So there are 2,367.74 BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning Network being run at over 10,838 nodes that we know about. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use, bitches. And we're going to start this one off with something that grabbed me completely by surprise. William Foxley is writing it for Bitcoin Magazine. Why the Navajo are mining Bitcoin. At nearly 400,000 people, the Navajo Nation is one of the largest Native American tribes in the United States. It's also one of the most impoverished, with poverty statistics closer to the world's least developed countries than its neighboring cities of Phoenix, Arizona, or Santa Fe, New Mexico. Nearly 50% of Navajo are unemployed, 40% don't have running water, 32% live without electricity, and over 30% live below the poverty line, according to an April 2021 testimony before Congress. Generational poverty for Native American populations has been the focus of an abundance of government research and spending, and yeah, no solutions though. Most solutions for the issues center on injecting federal dollars into local economies through subsidies, special business licenses, and community work. What these solutions don't propose, however, is giving tools for lasting individual empowerment to these indigenous populations. And indeed, the Navajo Nation is one of the most visible representations of living in a split monetary system. One with access to American capital, but lack of formal control over capital deployment. But a silent financial revolution is occurring on Navajo lands, and it's fueled by the growth of a new industry, Bitcoin mining. The broken Navajo economy is the product of numerous treaties signed between the United States governments and tribes during America's westward expansion. Most treaties abdicated direct control of tribal people to the tribe itself, including governmental functions, taxation rights, and law enforcement. But two major responsibilities remained in U.S. hands, trusteeship of land and control of the currency. These stipulations have had predictable financial consequences, do you think? As the trustee, the federal government leases Indian land out for uses such as farming, logging, or mining. <coughs> the U.S. government also manages the money accrued from such activities on behalf of the nations. 
decades of mismanagement culminated in 2012 with a $492 million settlement between 17 tribes and the Obama administration. Yet, the leasing system itself continues to hamper progress against poverty. Quote, the federal government took the land rights away from the Navajo people, Navajo Tribal Authority President Walter Hasse told Compass Mining in an interview. Quote, so a Navajo person can't own the land that their home is on. If you don't own the land, then how do you borrow the money to build a house on the land? Tribal sovereignty does not extend to currency either. As U.S. citizens, Native Americans are taxed in dollars, and while it's difficult to say the dollar has been a net negative for tribes, restrictions around how money can be used within the incumbent financial system could be considered one. Called the buckskin curtain, Indian tribes have not only been slow to adopt financial tools, but impeded from accessing them due to national sovereignty. Only 32 Native American financial institutions are in existence today, constituting the smallest percentage of minority-owned deposit institutions compared. Among other concerns, tribes worry accepting a bank charter from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency would interfere with their national status. For example, where would a banking dispute be heard in court? In reservation courtrooms or in Washington, D.C.? And what evidence do Native American tribes have that due process would be followed? I don't know, man. We've broken every fucking treaty we've ever had with them, so I would say probably none. But continuing, these questions have pushed tribes outside of the U.S. financial system by either being unable or unwilling to operate within the commercial banking sector. I'm getting, I'm feeling a rant coming on. I'm Hopefully I'll forget about it. Employment and currency only show half of the picture of economic damage, though. During the 20th century... Energy firms outside of Navajo lands signed contracts with the Navajo Nation to source and extract its abundant energy resources, especially coal and uranium. That coal was used to power cities from Santa Fe, New Mexico to Los Angeles, California, illuminating, watering, and powering a once sparsely populated portion of the United States. Years later, the power plants are coming down, leaving the Navajo little to show for leasing their land to outsiders minus poisoned groundwater, and abandoned coal pits. Over 4 million tons of uranium were also extracted from Navajo land from 1950 onward. While it fed Uncle Sam's Cold War appetite, Navajo uranium would have devastatingly long terminal effects on the indigenous people and their land. Some 27% of Navajo have heightened levels of uranium in their bodies, according to a 2016 study, while over 500 open-air uranium mines remain in various stages of cleanup. Before Bitcoin, mining has carried, or sorry, before Bitcoin, mining has carried very negative connotations for most of the Navajo Nation. In 2017, a small Canadian firm named Westblock approached the Navajo about tapping Navajo energy for a Bitcoin mine on Navajo land. Currently using 8 megawatts, the new mine is already in the process of doubling its size. That's equivalent to about 3,000 machines of various types powering and protecting the Bitcoin network using Navajo energy. But it's not just about the machines, it's about the output of those machines in the context of a people group who've gone without many of the benefits the nominal American enjoys. For example, the facility currently employs two full-time employees. With the expansion, that number will grow to 11. The money created from the mine will then circulate into the local economy. It may seem insignificant now, but mining Bitcoin on Navajo land is a very real source of future Navajo wealth, employment, and economic recovery. The Navajo mines also represent the Navajo nation, creating wealth for themselves with their energy. Bitcoin mining brings demand for energy to wherever the energy source is. Navajo energy now has a non-stop and quickly growing demand brought to their land with the profits paid to the Navajo nation. Lastly, the Navajo Bitcoin mines represent financial inclusion. Bitcoin mining is the first small step for broad Bitcoin adoption by the Navajo nation. Opting into a free and open internet money protocol with a physical presence among the Navajo has unlimited potential for economic growth and wealth creation. Thank you, William Foxley. Okay. I'm going to try not to rant. I really am. I'm going to try. 
It may not be possible though, because I drive through a good portion of the Navajo land most of the time, twice a year. I go from the Panhandle of Texas to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and up through and to uh, Pagosa Springs, Colorado, before I cut left and head west to uh, the Durango and Southwest Colorado area. And let me tell you what it looks like between Santa Fe and Española, which is about 30 miles to the north. Maybe, yeah, I'm going to say about 30 miles to the north. Some of the most poorest. Actually, I'm going to say this. From Santa Fe past Española, New Mexico, all the way up to, let's see, I want to say Cortez. Yeah, somewhere around Cortez is some of the most poorest people I've ever seen. I've driven through fucking Arkansas. I've seen that shit. Okay. I'm not, and I'm not saying that they're any better off, but I'm not, but I'm saying that if you think that these are the old, like the Arkansas back hills, banjo bridge sitting, you know, monkeys are the poorest people on the face of the planet. Fuck no. Go check this shit out. You take a drive north from Santa Fe, pat through Española and up to Cortez. And you take a good long look at what the fuck's going on out there. Man, it's bad. And what's even worse is that a deal between the Navajo Nation was struck with the United States government to allow business licenses to occur so that the Navajos could do their thing, you know, like try to be productive. And you know what was built? You think it was places where they craft, you know, handcrafted clothes or or made food? No, you know what it was? fucking casinos. And if you think that that hasn't had a massive impact on making people even fucking poorer out there in that land, because guess who goes? It, there, to tell you the truth, I've been to what, to a couple of these casinos and you know what I see? I, I don't really see like rich people from LA chilling out. It happens, it occurs, but that's not the great guts and feathers of who's sitting around the fucking poker table. You know who is? Poor, broke-ass motherfuckers with their last paycheck. That's who I see. I don't go into these places often, so you'll, you'll be very right in saying, yeah, well, how many times do you set foot in these places? Maybe twice, maybe three times over the past 20 years. And every single time I saw the exact same goddamn thing. And I didn't go to gamble. I went with a friend because he wanted to, I don't know, go play a couple of hands of blackjack, which I thought was weird. Just driving by, and he's like, oh, look, a casino. Let's stop in and play some blackjack. I'm like, fuck you. He's like, well, I want to play. And I'm like, okay, well, you do that. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just walk around. And while I was walking around, I was like going, where are all the rich people gambling? They weren't there. There's a bunch of poor ass, motherfucking Native Americans wasting what little money that they had on this bullshit casino, which is owned by their own people, and they're getting almost nothing from. It's just... It doesn't matter whether you're white, black, red, yellow, green, Martian. I don't care. You're fucking greedy and you will figure out a way to take it out on the weakest part of your population, which is exactly what we have. And the, the federal government is doing to you and me exactly what they did to the Indian tribes of this nation and exactly what has been being done to Latin America all the way down to the fucking tip of what? What the hell is it? Oh, God. Oh, Argentina. All right. All these people are forgotten and they're getting into Bitcoin. Who's your army? You know, watching, you know, one of the, one of my favorite movies is the third installation of uh, Indiana Jones, Uh, Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. I think it's got Sean Connery in it. Sean Connery plays his dad. Who's an intellectual and they they're, they're in the shit. They're like, they're getting attacked by this, this plane that's, you know, German plane in World War II or whatever that's shooting at them on their, on the beach. And the old man, Sean Connery grabs his umbrella and opens it up and starts running across the beach and a shit ton of birds fly up and the, and the plane crashes into him. It stops the engine and the plane crashes and it kills the pilot plane blows up and the action just stops. And Sean Connery folds his, Umbrella back up, walks up to Harrison Ford, his, his son, Indiana Jones, and says, I finally remembered my Charlemagne. May the trees 
and the rocks and the birds in the sky be my weapons and my armies. If you sat through the Navajo Nation story mining Bitcoin and cannot find the connection with what I just said, I can not fucking help you. You want your Bitcoiners? You need to not look at billionaires. You need to not look at hedge funds. You need to stop looking at Michael Saylor. You need to stop looking at futures-based ETFs and whether Gary Gensler is going to get off his ass and give us a spot Bitcoin ETF. And you need to stop looking at altcoins and what they may or may not do to the future of Bitcoin. The future of the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network, the token, the security, everything lies in the hands of the poorest people on the planet because they're the ones that need it the fucking most. Help them before you help a billionaire. That's all I got to say about that. God damn it. Fucking shit pisses me off. And it's not because I'm some kind of tree hugging hippie freak, by the way. It's not that I've been to some kind of bleeding heart for the fucking native American people. You know why? Cause I would run through fucking New Mexico as a goddamn 18 year old, 19 year old going, ha ha ha. Look at the drunk Indians. Yep. I'm going to admit that shit right now so that you understand what's been fucking done to every single one of us. We've been turned against each other, given our race, given our socioeconomic status, we've been given blinders. All of that shit is whether your religion is different than mine or your skin color is different than mine or your culture is different than mine or whether your, your sexuality is different than mine, I don't fucking care. Do you, do you have a beating heart in your chest and can you fog a mirror? Okay, you are now part of the army. Congratulations, you've just been inducted to the army because all of us have been looking at each other like this for so long because we've been given blinders in the form of fiat money. They've destroyed our ability to come together and Bitcoin gives us that ability back. It saws like a chainsaw through any amount of blinders that, be, that can be given to us. And now we can look at each other and say, Mexico has never been bad. The C- Central America has never been bad. The people that are coming up from Guatemala to come to America have to leave their countries because basically the United States has fucked their economies over so completely. And, and with, you know, with help from, from their own leaders, because, you know, people are greedy and they'll do anything that they can to get ahead. But I'm here to tell you this. I now look when I go through Santa Fe and up through New Mexico and up into Cortez. And I see the devastation that has occurred to these people because I've been making that trip since I was 17 years old. And I've driven that same road from Klein's Corners to Santa Fe to Española and into Cortez and up to uh, Pagosa Springs for decades. And nothing has changed except the installation of casinos. That's it. And all those casinos occur between, most of those casinos occur between two spots, uh, north of Santa Fe and south of Española. And there's like five of them, if not six, all on that 30-mile stretch of road. And that stretch of road represents one of the poorest places in the United States. They did that shit on purpose. Keeps them poor. They're doing it with the volition of their own fucking people, too. Okay. Is that good enough, Ram? Because <laughs> billionaire Tom Steyer trashes Bitcoin and calls it an environmental disaster. See, here's the billionaire that doesn't understand what the Navajo do understand. It is not an environmental disaster. You lift the people up out of poverty and, and the environment will take care of itself. Fix the money, fix the world. Fix the money, it fixes the people. The people will fix the world because they have something to latch onto. But here we have Tom Steyer, who I don't even know who the fuck he is. Some hedge fund billionaire calling it a disaster. And anyway, he's advocating for the environment. Oh, oh yes, yes. And he's taking aim at Bitcoin. Oh my God. And he's calling the cryptocurrency an environmental disaster. Quote, Bitcoin is a huge user of electricity. So to the extent that the electricity is derived from fossil fuels and is emitting greenhouse gases and other dangerous toxin, 
toxins rather than it's a problem. Stayer told Yahoo Finance. By the way, this is Scott Cipollina from Decrypt, and Scott Cipollina has become an enemy of Bitcoin when it comes to the ESG narrative. I'm not going to read any more of this shit. I'm just not. Like, I'm not going to talk about the Craig Wright trial at all. Yes, it's going on. Do I know what's going on inside of it? Yeah, a little bit. I can't help it because I see it on Twitter. Am I going to tell you about it? No. Why? Because it doesn't need fucking any kind of attention whatsoever. And neither does Tom Steyer or Scott Cipollina. Because we know the unimaginative, uninventive narrative that they're posing, which is old, crusty, and needs to be put into the dustbin. For our my friends over there across the pond, that's the garbage for you and me. Let's continue. Square Cash app generated 1.8 billion in Bitcoin revenue in the third quarter. Bitcoin revenue and gross profit decreased in the third quarter versus the second quarter. However, Square said, citing the relative stability in the price of Bitcoin, which affected trading activity compared to prior quarters. So yes, while Square Cash has dropped in revenue in the third quarter compared to quarter one, I think it's going to be okay. We're in a consolidation phase anyway. We can't seem to do anything but chill out around the 60s, but that's okay. I, I'm, not, I'm not asking for you know lady luck to get on my side and we end up having to chill out with those assholes in the 58K gang. And if you don't know who I'm talking about... I love them all, even though they're, they're assholes. Anyway, <laughs> uh, let's see, was, what else is here? Oh, uh, Kazakhstan passes a law to monitor crypto services for money laundering, terrorism financing. Of course, terrorism, money laundering, terrorism. Oh my God. This is Ana Batikova writing for Coindesk. Companies working with the digital assets in Kazakhstan could soon be subject to anti-money laundering regulations, according to a new law. Passed by the National Parliament today, news agency Sputnik wrote on Friday, the country's president has yet to sign the document into law, however. <coughs> Companies issuing digital assets or providing fiat on-ramps and crypto trading services would have to notify Kazakhstan's Ministry of Digital Development, Innovation, and Aerospace Industry when they launch their services or shut them down, Sputnik said. The agency quoted the country's parliament member, Olga Parapechina, who said that the lack of such monitoring has led to the rise in money laundering and terrorism financed using digital assets. <laughs> Kazakhstan is a popular location for cryptocurrency mining in the world. Being next door to China has made it a place of relocation for some Chinese miners that fled China due to the latest anti-crypto crackdown over there. So, Kazakhstan using the same old unimaginative, uninventive bullshit that Tom Steyer's using. Except Tom's talking about the environment. These guys are talking about all of a sudden money laundering is on the rise. Because apparently that's what humans do. Right? Ever since humans became humans and we fell out of the fucking tree, the first thing we did is figure out a way to launder our coconuts. Because that's what we do. None of us, none of us are at all trying to be honest have an ethical, moral, you know, or moral base. No, none of us, not every single one of us is purpose built to finance terrorism, traffic children, and launder money. That's apparently the only thing that human beings can do, except for those human beings that make the laws against those. Those are the people that are apparently clean as goddamn whistle, right? Right. Except they're, they're the worst terrorist financing and money launderers that we we have you know okay that's gonna do it for the morning roundup man after all that we're gonna need a joke from dad says jokes my wife gave birth in our car on the way to the hospital I named him Carson. You see, the way that joke should have worked was, my wife gave birth in our car to our son on the way to the hospital. I named him Carson. Or it could have been, my wife gave birth to our son in our car. I named him Carson. See, I, I honestly think that that would have been a better way to roll, but... 
I'm not the one that writes jokes for dad says jokes, so I'm just going to let it go. Now, again, I can't let it go and I'm going to not do a secondary rant, but I do want you to start thinking about the fact that who, who is, who are the most credible soldiers, the, the most credible potential soldiers. And I, I know you guys don't like, you know, a lot of people are saying, stop equating it to war and, and violence. But I, I honestly, I'm, I'm just lacking in the vocabulary here, people. I mean, what am I going to say? I don't know. There, I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm just not going to give a shit. Who are the best potential soldiers in the battle against fiat and all that fiat represents? The Navajo Nation is definitely one of them, but there are many nations of the what's called First Peoples or Indigenous Peoples or Native Americans. There's many tribes in the United States, and they all got fucked by the federal government. And now the federal government is fucking you as an American. They fucked the first Americans. Why not fuck the second Americans? Just saying. They've been screwing Central America and South America for decades. Argentina used to be one of the richest countries on the face of the planet until we started meddling in their shit. And it ain't just us, by the way. It's not just America's fault. You can look at the UK. You can look at Germany. You can look at a lot of people that have started getting their fingers in the pie because there's so much natural resources down there, which is one of the reasons why I think that militant communist and socialist bullshit is also rampant in South America because it's the only way that they can make sure that it's such a hornet's nest that nobody wants to go try to physically extract the natural resources down there. I'm not saying that communism is good. It's not. It's actually poison and, and beyond toxic, but it is what it is. I just think that that's one of the reasons why it's such a hotbed for that kind of bullshit down there is that Somehow or another, it's a natural immunity or something I, 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 against people coming down there and physically taking, but we just keep, we just keep putting on the pressure. We just keep doing it. And now that Navajo, the Navajo uh, piece from Bitcoin was a Bitcoin. I can't remember if it was Bitcoin magazine or not. Doesn't matter. I'm th- pretty sure it was, um, has really kind of, you think your eyes are open until they're not. Or rather, you think your eyes are opened until they really are, and my eyes will be opened again. It's sometime in the future, I'll read something else where it's like, holy shit. I read this one, and I was like, holy shit. I've been, do, I've been in Bitcoin since 2015. And I, I don't know why that this particular story affected me the way it, it, it is. Believe me, I'm not a bleeding heart. I know they got fucked. Uh, that's easy. Uh, you, you just can't dismiss that. But... There was something about the Navajo mining Bitcoin that automatically flipped them from being something that I had forgotten about to something that, yeah, you're gonna. I know you're. I know you're. You're saying it. You're completing my sentence. Something I can leverage. I don't want to use them though. Just like when I when I say about the whole Latin American thing, don't go down there and try to fucking help. All right. Don't it, like, well, it's okay to help. I'm just saying, don't go down there and, and, and not learn their culture. Not at least try to learn the language. Not at least try to be an actual friend or somebody who's competently interested in these people. Don't do that. If you're just going to leverage them because they have a beating heart and they can fog a mirror, that's the wrong way to go. I do think that there is a place for us to invest time as Bitcoiners into looking at Native American tribes and what they really have gone through. And maybe not us can help them, but maybe Bitcoin can. And we get a win-win scenario. If we're going to do this at all, number one rule, do no harm, number two rule, Respect their culture. That actually means try give a shit. Actually form the neural energy to actually fucking care once. And maybe we'll learn something because guess what? The Navajo and other American Indian tribes knew how to do before we literally packed them up and shipped them off. They were the best land managers you'll ever see. I can't tell you about it all right now, but if you're interested, 
just, I don't know, Google or DuckDuckGo or something like that says, and, and then just, just Google this, Native American land management. Look at the past. Not like a book that was written about how the Navajo manage their lands right now. You don't want to, they're not managing their lands. They can't. How they used to use fire in the forest. How they used to use fire on the plains. How they used to herd animals. They knew how to build soil. They knew how to keep soil fertile. They knew how to work the land. There's not a single, well, actually, I take that back. There's a few. But past the few, there's not a single modern American that knows jack shit about what's going on with plants, animals, and their interaction with land. And with that, I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.